If you would take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 1, 21, and beginning in verse 12. We'll read this morning as Jesus cleanses the temple, curses a fig tree, and then has his authority challenged while he's teaching in the temple. Two temple pericopes or passages sandwiched around this cursing of a fig tree. We'll read our text this morning, and if you would stand in honor of reading the reading of God's Word, we'll read Matthew 21 and beginning in verse 12, and read down through verse 27. The Scriptures read this, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. This story, especially the one of Jesus emptying uh, the temple courtyard of all the money changers uh, and vendors is given in all four of the Gospels. John's account is the most detailed of them, giving us a little bit more of animals that were found there, oxen, sheep, pigeons, 
That's the passage where it speaks of Jesus making a whip of cords and driving out the money changers with this whip. In that passage in John chapter 2, John gives the story earlier in Jesus' ministry, but most commentators will say it has to be the same event. It's so similar. But in verse 17 of John chapter 2, his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. There was a line in what we read that spoke of the authority of Jesus in the third section where the authorities, the religious leaders, came to Jesus and asked him, by what authority do you do these things? This question is asked about Jesus. We can ask the question about Jesus throwing the vendors out of the temple, Jesus withering a fig tree instantly. By what authority is he able to do this? One who has authority over creation, authority over a temple, authority over the religious leaders, authority to teach. How can this man do these things? Who gave him the authority to do this? It's insinuating that he could not do them on his own, or he ought not to do them without permission. Their questions might be condemning Jesus as not having received the appropriate permission to do what he has just done. As Jesus, two of these scenarios happen in the temple that's there, Herod's temple that is in place as Jesus is alive, in place of what used to be Solomon's temple that was destroyed and a new one was raised up and made bigger. As the temple is there and these actions happen around it. It'd be helpful, I think, for us. I was helped by it this week to watch a video that is on the temple and going a little bit of a biblical theology through this word or through this idea of the temple as we walk throughout the scriptures. So we'll watch just a short video here, and then we'll come back. Thank 
because these humans are gonna kill us too. But instead of dealing with that, we want to be doing our own thing and we're exiled from part of the thing. And like Adam and Eve, speaking of humans, also wants to do our own thing. We need to be dead to something that destroys I felt like they would do a better job giving a short summary of the temple as we begin walking into this scene where Jesus is and seeing how we're at the confluence of a temple that was built, not Solomon's temple that he built for the Lord. That was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians, but another temple, the second temple that is built years later, expanded by Herod. Some have referred to it as Herod's temple. The second temple is substantially larger in size. This is the one that Jesus is walking into this morning as he comes into Jerusalem. One rabbi wrote of Herod's temple that it used to be said, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building. The temple was not only the focus of natural, national religious life, but it was also a symbol It was a symbol of national identity and pride. For the Israelite people, they found a lot of pride in this building. Yet for God, He always intended that for them, it would be but a mere shadow of the true temple, and that is Christ. So you have the irony of now the temple himself, as we saw in the video, Christ himself comes into a physical temple. The one who is the fulfillment of what this building is meant to point to, is coming into the temple to establish his rule and reign over it and over his people. 
Solomon's temple, when it was built, was a little bit smaller than an American football field. Herod's temple, however, was two and a half times larger than a football field. Upon entering the temple gates, you would have come to a courtyard that is called the courtyard of the Gentiles, or sometimes is also referred to the courtyard for women. It was a large area with stalls, multiple teachers with crowds and listeners would be there gathered. And while this courtyard area was not filled with only Gentiles, it was the only place that many people could go in the temple. The crippled, the lame, the blind could not go into the temple area itself where sacrifices were being done. There are degrees of entrance that were allowed were prescribed. There were temple guards to make sure that the laws that were set forth were heeded. However, this courtyard would have been full of all sorts of people. And right now when Jesus comes in, probably most of them would have been Jews who were there for the Passover. As they come in for the Passover, travelers are coming from all, are- all areas over this whole region to worship. They're offering animal sacrifices They're paying an annual temple tax. With those things, with travelers, we all know when you're traveling, there's a lot of logistical concerns, aren't there? Where are you going to stay? What are you going to eat? Well, now you're coming to do a job or a task. Where are the elements of which now I can use to sacrifice? Am I going to walk my sheep or oxen all the way from home to the temple to sacrifice it? Well, they offer animals for sale right there. So the convenience of being able to worship and not having to bring an animal with me, it's wonderful. All of these logistical issues of traveling with animals or families, and on top of that, all the different currencies and coinage that people from different regions would have been bringing with them. There was only one coin. The Tyrian coin was necessary, acceptable to pay the tax. So... You need an exchange, right? A currency exchange or a money changer to help with that. And of course, there's going to be a fee to change coins into the currency that is necessary. Animals are for sale for out-of-town worshipers. Oxen, sheep, pigeons, as John records. And if you've read the Old Testament, we know that the poorer the family, the smaller the animal that they could afford and that they are able to sacrifice God does not want to bind his people in worship to where a family who can't afford an oxen must sacrifice an oxen on the altar. No, God allows accommodations. We allow a poor family to offer a turtle dove or another animal that would be within their means. Because the point of the sacrifice was not the actual animal that was offered, but is the heart of the worshiper who is offering it on the altar before God. We can all understand the need for these vendors, both those who are selling animals, those who are trading, those who are offering uh, different currency and coins. However, the issue at hand here in this text, when Jesus drives them all out, is not as often as thought of. Often we think that they're charging exorbitant costs for these items of worship, making the Lord's house a den of thieves, as Jesus says. They're robbing God's people. They're causing way too much, or they're charging way too much. It's extortion. 
Just like those vendors inside any stadium, sports, sporting event that you go to, charging, what, $11 for a hot dog? You know that that meat in that hot dog is not worth $1, let alone 11 a Coke is 6 $7 sometimes. And if you get a souvenir cup, it might just be a clean $10 bill. A bowl of Dippin' Dots, what, six bucks maybe. It's criminal what they charge, right? And so we look at a text like this and we say, of course, that's the issue. Yet Jesus doesn't say that the prices are too high. He doesn't tell the vendors to lower their prices and stop gouging them. But the issue is location. These vendors are in the wrong spot. They should not be in the temple complex at all. The services might be needed and helpful, and maybe the prices are higher than they should be. But just like at a ball game, you can choose to bring in your own food or water bottle if you want to. The problem is that in the area where teaching and praying is to be happening, where worship of the Almighty God is to be happening, you have sounds of animals being sold. You have merchants hawking goods, bargaining going on. No, we're cheaper than them. Come here for the best prices in the temple courtyard. All of a sudden now, instead of God's word being read and taught, you have the shouting of deals, prices, items being bagged up. The area of worship has turned into a mall. Jesus says, quoting from Isaiah 56, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Evidently, some early writings seem to show that this allowing of vendors into the temple courtyard could have been a more recent phenomenon and a revealing of the church leaders who allowed it. It wasn't allowed normally, not all the time, but recently maybe. Either way, Jesus comes into a busy and bustling courtyard, and whether with a whip of cords or not, he's overturning all the tables. He's flipping over chairs. He's driving them all out. This is not the place that they are to be. This is not what is to be occurring in the temple. This is not what this place is for. Jesus comes into the temple and asserts his authority over this temple. His temple. Some might refer to it as Herod's temple, as one who did quite a bit of uh, extending it or redoing it. But this is Jesus' temple. This is his house by telling the vendors to get out. Like a parent, this would, of course, never happen. So just dream with me. Like a parent who comes home to find their teenager has been throwing a party when they're supposed to be studying all night and comes in and throws everyone out. The parent, it's their house. Everyone leaves except their child who's responsible. None of those other kids who were there for the party are the responsible ones. It's their child who opened the door, who made the invitation maybe. It's their child who is the responsible party who knew better. Jesus throws out all of the vendors, but his anger is with the religious leaders. They have allowed this. And yet Jesus comes into his house, and he tells them to get out. He will establish the proper care and rule in his home. Jesus fulfills Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, will come to his temple. And also Zechariah 14, verse 21, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all whose sacrifice may come and take of them, boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord. T-R-A-D-E-R, traitor of hosts on that day. There shall no longer be someone doing trade in the house of the Lord on that day. After Jesus reclaims the temple for himself, the blind and lame come to him and he heals them. Did you notice as he immediately gets rid of all of the money changers and all of the traders that are in there, the ones who are selling animals, that immediately, verse 14, the blind and the lame come to him in the temple. Space is made. There's an opportunity now for those who need Jesus to be able to find him because all of the commercial vendors and stalls are gone. Everyone who's not supposed to be there, everyone who's there for ill-gotten reasons and desires for commerce and money are gone. The ministry can happen. Before you have the hustle and the bustle of all of the trading and all of the money that's exchanging hands. Jesus says, this is not to be what my house is for, but it's a house of prayer. It's an opportunity for people to come near to God and God to come near to his people. It's a place for people who need to praise God. We'll see, not only do the blind and the lame come to him in the temple and he heals them, but you have children who are crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Children who often can be overlooked, children who in the church which sometimes people view wrongly so as a temple. Tell children not to run around, not to do this. And Jesus, we see them praising God. It's the children who are mentioned. It's the lame and the blind who are mentioned. All of those who come genuinely with hearts that desire to worship, hearts that want to praise Him, come near to Him. But those who are here for the wrong reasons, Jesus pushes out. Tells them they can go find another place. The location is wrong. Their purposes are nefarious. Praising God and healing and teaching the next day, as we'll see, in the third piece of which we'll, what we'll look at, is occurring now in the temple. Worship is happening, and people are drawing near to God through Jesus. We looked earlier at Isaiah 56. As Jesus mentions, he quotes, My house shall be called a house of prayer, for all peoples. But a couple of verses before that, notice the context of what Isaiah 56 gives us. Beginning in verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Remember, we mentioned that in this courtyard, it was the courtyard of the Gentiles or of the women or those who weren't allowed into the regular parts of the temple when you're able to uh, offer your sacrifice and or the priests able to be in other parts of the temple, or the high priest in certain places, the Holy of Holies. And here Jesus makes it clear in His house, those who have hearts who love Him, who desire to keep His word, hold fast to His covenant, outsiders or not, the blind, the poor, the lame, the children who are praising Him, those otherwise normally excluded in the temple can come to Him, men, Women, children, those who otherwise would have been cast out. This is why Jesus himself is a far greater temple than the temple of Herod or Solomon ever was. And there you are constantly offering a sacrifice for the hopes that it will cover and atone for your sins. When one comes to Jesus with a heart that recognizes they are a sinner and in him is the hope of everlasting life alone comes and finds their rest in Him, to that one. No matter their background or their condition, to that one Jesus offers His holy mountain for which they can worship on. He will gather them to Himself. For them, they are able to come and worship with Him, offering no sacrifice, because the one they trust in not only is the true temple, Jesus Himself, but is also the true sacrifice that came and gave his life willingly for our sins. People could come into this temple courtyard all the time, day after day, every Passover season, purchase an animal, give the right coinage for their temple tax, do all of the right methods and means and things that were required of them, show up, be there, do their thing, check the box, and their hearts be far from him. They could be of the right ethnicity. They could have the right conditions bodily, and their hearts be far from him, and not be those whom he gathers to himself. Isaiah 56, in the context that is given, is sweet in that Christ quotes from it. Most likely, the people his disciples, maybe those who are hearing it, would have better known the context that is given of it. And as he's speaking of his house and what it shall be is open to all, all who come to him. This text and what we see here as Jesus drives out these money changers certainly does not in any way mean that the church can never sell a book in the lobby. Uh, money changers. It certainly doesn't mean that there are no resources that could be added or things that can benefit our worship. But what it does mean is that we must not lose sight of our worship and that Christ comes for our hearts, not merely for our personal attendance, not merely for our place and outward signs of worship, but your heart. Inside, who are you? And what is it that you love? Who is it that you are serving? 
when you're not here. When you're at home, all alone, early in the morning, or when no one's watching, what is it that we are thinking of and dwelling on? When we come to Christ in prayer and desiring to worship Him, what is it that we ask for? What is it that we long for? When we walk through the milieu of this world and all of the mall-ish type places and glitz and glamour, what is it that our hearts are crying out for? The children cry out and praise to Jesus in the temple. The blind and the lame cry out for healing. Those who see their neediness come to Jesus. Those who desire wealth and prosperity draw others away from him. The Jewish leaders see and hear what Jesus is doing in the temple. They hear what the children are saying, and they're indignant. There's no reaction that is given in the passage to Jesus. Immediately after he clears the money changers out, there's no reaction that is mentioned. But when the children are praising Jesus, when he's doing wonderful things in the temple, the church leaders are indignant. They might have been thinking, yeah, we knew that those vendors shouldn't really be in there. But when Jesus replaces it with genuine worship, they're pricked to their hearts. Every time Jesus heals or teaches, there is a reaction of the Jewish leaders. But not when he makes his public demonstration of authority. By doing this, he's saying that something wrong was being done. No one else was willing to clear this out, and he's going to do it for the honor of God's temple, for the honor of genuine worship. And the church leaders are indignant. They assumed Jesus was wrong, that what he was doing was wrong, that what the children were saying was wrong. They were convinced that Jesus was not who he said he was, and they were indignant that he was putting on a ruse for the people. Luke, in his account of the gospel, uh, gospel account of this tragic entry into Jerusalem. It says in Luke chapter 19, verse 36 through 40, that if the people did not cry out in worship, that if the people who are lining the streets, putting all of their cloaks on the ground when Jesus passes through, we looked at that last week. If, if those people didn't cry out in worship, if these children didn't cry out in praise to God, he says in Luke chapter 19, verse 36, that I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. And Jesus says earlier in Matthew that the issue is not the temple. The issue is not the laws that have to be kept within a building or the laws that are to be kept for burning a sacrifice before God. But Jesus says earlier in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12, I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus desires something greater. He desires mercy and not sacrifice. He is greater than the temple. Jesus is the true and greater temple. In Him is life. And it's in him that we worship. This is why it's an affront to those religious leaders. He's setting himself up as the one, the Messiah who is to come, 
the one who has come, God himself, by allowing praise, by showing authority over the temple. He is portraying that he is the one who is the true and greater temple, the eternal temple that is presence with God for all of eternity. There is rest and there is rule in Christ. Jesus exercises his authority not only in the temple publicly, but also with his disciples. In the next pericope we see in verse 18 and following, Jesus goes out for the evening and he lodges in a city close by called Bethany. But he comes back in the morning. It says he returns to the city. Seems like, I don't know, it would be the last place that I would want to come back to. Just had this big to-do in Jerusalem, made this big uprising, and almost the last thing I would want to do is to come back into the midst of it. And Jesus certainly is not us and comes right back into the city. But on his way in, it says he was hungry. Love the examples of his humanity. Jesus is hungry. We would all be hungry in the morning as well. And as he's hungry, he sees a fig tree. And if you've ever been in Oregon and you're walking or driving by and you see a blackberry bush, if you're anything like me, your mouth begins to water. I remember the very first time that I came into blackberry season in Oregon and I would drive around and I was working uh, for FedEx at the time and driving around Wilsonville, Oregon. And I began to see these bushes and they had these black pieces of beauty on them. Wonderful jewels of delight that you could eat that were free for the taking. And as long as you got to them first, I would notice on lunch breaks, workers from factories coming out and picking. And I thought, I've got to get in on this. We're allowed to pick these things. Oregon just has fruit everywhere for free. In Washington, it's in people's fences, so you ought not pick that stuff. In Oregon, it's just on the side of the road everywhere. And if you can get it to it before the sun scorches it or the birds eat it, there is a delicious bounty for the one who comes prepared with a Ziploc bag. I would have black and blue hands for several days working because my gallon bag would be full of blackberries. Ask my wife. I loved them. But what a shame if you are in Oregon and you walk up to a blackberry bush and it's in full leaf. It even has those vines that come over with those deadly thorns that'll about kill you if you get stuck with them, right? And you see it and all of a sudden there is not a single blackberry on it. Your mouth is watering. You're ready. You got your Ziploc bag. You even prepared with gloves. You're all set to go. And the plant is dry not a single berry on it. There's no fruit at all. It doesn't make any sense. Every sign of life is given outwardly. You're fully expecting fruit because you know how this process generally works. The leaves come up. Those little buds start getting bigger and they start out green and then they get red or purplish and all of a sudden they get that almost deep black. They're big and you're ready to eat them. And there's nothing there, not even the signs of life, no fruit at all. It hasn't dried up. The birds haven't eaten it. It's not like it's there and it's inedible, but there's no sign at all of fruit. Every indication from a distance is that that bush is alive. And yet upon closer inspection, you find it to be dead. Jesus is cursing those who make a show of bearing much fruit but are spiritually barren. 
He takes a tree, an organic piece of life. And as C.S. Lewis says, and we just read in a group of men this past week, in his book, Miracles, C.S. Lewis calls this a single miracle of destruction that Jesus does. He says that God is a God of death because he's a God of life, the God of human death because through it, increase of life now comes, the God of merely organic death because death is a part of the very mode by which organic life spreads itself out in time and yet remains new. But here Jesus, in cursing this tree, he says, ceased to do something to it. Lewis says, no tree died that year in Palestine or any year anywhere, except that God did, or rather ceased to do, something to it. Instantly, Jesus stopped maintaining life within this tree, and the tree shriveled up. The same one who has authority over the temple ground, because he himself is the temple, is the one who himself has all life and death in himself, all authority over us and anything that is made in all creation. Christ himself has authority over. He has the ability to stop life going to a tree and it stops. And in this one, instantly caused it to shrivel up. What would have taken days or weeks or months to see these leaves brown and fall to the ground and the tree wither up before somebody finally chopped it down, Jesus does instantly, moves it quicker than it normally would have happened because he has authority to do so. He has authority to say what genuine true worship is, and he has authority to say that there will be judgment on those who show no fruit. He has authority to give life and to take life. He has authority over plants. He has authority over the temple authority over religious matters, authority over physical matters. This one who has come is setting his foot in the ground. I am the author of life. I am God himself. You oppose any of these things. You oppose myself. It's as almost as if Jesus in these scenarios and the ones that are to come is setting a stake in the ground. I'm ready to die. On this hill, I will stand and I will not give in. Before, he's not sort of towed around the line, but he hasn't pushed on. Jesus is full-fledged kicking people out of the temple. You don't just do that, and there's no consequence. Jesus knows the time is short and what will happen. But here in this miracle of destruction, as Lewis calls it, he withers a fig tree instantly. Why a fig tree? Why kill a tree, for crying out loud? There's only one other time in the, in the scriptures that Jesus does something to organic life, and that is pigs, remember? Cast a demon out of this person, and the demon doesn't want to just be cast out into nothingness, but they see a herd of pigs, like 2,000 pigs. That's a massive herd of pigs. I know what pork costs nowadays per pound. I'm just thinking real quick in my mind. Some farmer is really upset. 2,000 pigs... Jesus sends all of these demons or this legion of demons into 2,000 pigs and they rush headlong off of a cliff and die. Why? Why not just T 
teach us something? Why not just say some words that get the point across? Why not give us a a mental picture? Because sometimes we need something like this. Sometimes we need to see pigs running off of a cliff to get the idea that demonic power is serious and real, not something to be messed with, that there was all of this inside of this person, and Jesus has authority over them and can cast them out with a word. He can do with them whatever he pleases, and he sent them into pigs. Be thankful he didn't send them into 2,000 people. The same is true here. The God who has authority over life and death does not turn to one of his disciples who doesn't bear fruit and say, you're dead, does he? But he turns to a tree and for them gives them a picture and he curses the tree and it dies. And in so doing shows compassion on those he will die for. In a sense, Jesus himself becomes like this shriveled up fig tree for his people. He doesn't, he can, and in other times does give life and take life. But in this instance, in front of these disciples, he sees something that is fruitless, that ought to have fruit on it of any kind. Every sign is given and he's hungry. The tree's not fulfilling its purpose for whatever reason. And he curses it and it dies. But no person did. In a few days, Jesus will willingly give his life so that all of those men who are following him right now can have eternal life. So that you and I this morning, who have never seen a temple, who have never seen Herod's temple, or maybe some have seen remnants of some of these temples, or been to the same area, but most of us probably have not. For those of us who are sitting here this morning, you don't have to. You don't have to go to that same land and see those same sites and be able to have any sort of a religious experience and go to a temple and offer your animal sacrifices because Jesus, the one with all authority over all of these things, willingly laid it all aside that he might give his life for you and for me. That we might willingly lay aside all of our supposed authority, all of our things that we worship otherwise, that we might willingly lay aside our lives and give them to him. The religious leaders come to Jesus as he's teaching in the temple in the next few verses and question his authority. And he asks them a question and they're unwilling to answer it for fear of the people. Oh, that they would have answered it and been told why Jesus, who gave him their authority, that they might hear the truth, and the truth set them free. And yet they didn't, and would hear nothing from him. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus, the one with all, of, all authority, is able to hold back his authority at these times, and when he will be arrested, and he will be crucified, to willingly give all authority over to your and I redemption. May we be willing to give our worship to him. May we be willing to ask the questions of ourselves when we come in to worship. Like those going into the temple to worship. May we come into this place with this body 
and ask ourselves, Christ, how is it you desire to be worshipped this morning? How is it, what is it that you desire of me and my heart this morning? You are the one with all of authority. When we genuinely recognize and respect the authorities that are given to us, we want to do what it is they're asking of us, don't we? When one has willingly laid down his life for us, the one with all authority of heaven and earth, may we willingly give our desires for worship. How we want to be fed. How we want this Sunday morning to go. I want it to go without any distractions, any slide or musical or microphone issues of any kind. I want it to go swimmingly with certain details all set up. You might have different ideas of worship. I want so-and-so to come talk to me. I want this seat to be open. I want this thing to happen. I want this emotional response. I want this song to be sung, you name it. We all come in with other things that our hearts cling on to so easily instead of, Christ, you are my authority. May I come under your leadership, submit to your authority in this place and in every place. Because when we recognize Christ as a true and greater temple, we see that it's not just when we gather for worship but when we gather daily for worship because we are in Christ. It's not a place we have to come to to worship. It's a person that we worship. And so daily we're offering, you are my authority. In what way do you want me to desire? Do you desire that I follow and obey you this morning? The one with all authority laid down his life that we might willingly give our lives back to him as the one who has authority over us. For the last two years, We've had a lot of issues with authority, haven't we? A lot of issues with good authority and bad authority. We want to obey the scriptures. We're, we're God's people. We believe that the, the scriptures are our authority for faith and practice, don't we? And we, we struggle with authority. And for the last two years, we've had a lot of different authorities telling us what to do, what not to do, how to do it, when to do it. Six feet, eight feet, 10 feet, five feet. Get your vaccine, get your booster, get this, get that, do this, do that. All of these authorities. And the president authority differs from the state authority, who differs from the local authority, who differs from a medical authority, who differs from a police authority, who differs from your parents as your authority, who differ from all of these things. How in the world ought we to live? We submit to God as our authority. And we say, God, and how is it that you want me to live in this place, at this time, doing what you have called me to do. When all of these voices are speaking to us and all of these different ways of authority, God, how is it that you desire us to live? What is it you're asking of my heart? What are we seeing in my heart and my responses that ought to change? As we come to worship, as we live our lives, as we live in light of the government around us or religious leaders, or you name it, and in every and all circumstances, what is it that the one who is the author of all things, the authority over us in every way, asking of us as his people to do? May we not challenge his authority as the leaders did, 
but may we submit to it, marvel in it, and like the children and those who are being healed. May we just glory in the Christ who has come as our authority, not seeing as something being lorded over us and we don't want to follow it, but the greatest of joys in being able to give our lives over to Christ. Our Father, we are grateful for this morning and the opportunity to be in your word. Would you please feed us by means of your word? And would we, as your people, find our greatest joy in Jesus Christ, the one who has come for us, that he died on the cross, that he might redeem us to be our Lord and our Savior, the one who comes as our authority. Would you help us to trust in him at all times and in every way? We ask your blessing on this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we have the privilege of